For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. So you might have heard tell that it's 4th of July. And Independence Day in America, and like a lot of families, our family's going to go get together. And it's going to be a really special time, especially after a year plus of pandemic and protocols and social distancing and having to be cautious. Last year's 4th of July just didn't quite feel the same. So like a lot of people in America, it's really time to enjoy ourselves, but also to reflect a little bit. Well, the other part of our Independence Day, where America celebrates their independence from being a British colony, we thought it'd be fun to take this time of thankfulness and reflection and talk to one of our friends that are British, uh, our buddy Ben Harris from across the pond. So this episode of Heard Tell is going to be from up yonder in West Virginia, where I'm celebrating my family, to over yonder, to London, England where Ben works in politics. He works around the halls of parliament and power. And to kind of get an outsider view of some of the things we've been talking about in American culture and politics. We'll talk about some of the differences. We'll even talk a little bit of soccer, football for those folks, and how things like racism in sports and politics and culture over there is different than it is here, how their system of government's a little different. And we'll also talk about how the special relationship between England and America has always been there and how we need to do some things with some of the political and cultural challenges today to make sure it stays that way. So on this Independence Day weekend, we're recording this on July the 4th. Whenever you listen to it, be thankful for the special relationship from what used to be our enemies, England, the British, the British are coming on Herd Tell. Our buddy Ben Harris talking culture and politics from the view from over yonder right after this. And I'm thrilled to be joined by our friend from over yonder across the pond, Ben Harris. How are you, sir? Good, thank you. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Yeah, um, yeah it's uh, it's good to it's good to I've, I've sort of listen to clips of yours before, and it's good to be on here. I'm I'm thrilled you took the time for us. It's kind of cool because uh, we've actually been trying to get together for a couple of weeks, but it just worked out. We're doing this on the 4th of July. So it's kind of interesting on the 4th of July to have the over there perspective of what's going on in American culture and politics. Let's just start right there. Is it kind of funny in England when we have our big 4th of July celebration? How does that land? We're all friends now. We we talk about the special <laughs> relationship. We have our jokes about, you know, you blowing a 13-colony lead, that sort of thing. But uh, what what do they think about our little holiday over here? I mean, a few years ago, I don't think it was really... I mean, I was, when I was growing up as a kid, it wasn't really a thing. But obviously, because of the internet and social media, it's become we've sort of become more aware of it and you know we like we like to make jokes and stuff like that but obviously i mean most people here we love americans especially me i've always been a big fan and um 
Yeah, it's it's sort of a lot of American traditions are sort of becoming more well known in the UK. I think Thanksgiving is another one. So uh, I think a lot of it, we, we just sort of look on it with uh, sort of amusement, uh, you know, with the fireworks and all those sort of things you like to do. And um, it's good to have that because we don't really have an Independence Day. We just really got, we just sort of, we didn't have one because we never became independent from anyone else, if you know what I mean. Right. And you, a lot of people don't realize in your parliamentarian system, you don't really have an equivalent to our constitutional system. Y'all kind of change it as you go. So it's no. it's more of an amalgamation over history of how the English parliamentary system has been built up as opposed to us where, you know, we kind of have a hard and fast date and then we have yeah. a, we have our founding documents. It's very different for the British people, isn't it? Well, ours is officially, uh, it's funny, it's officially sort of unwritten, but there'll often be references to things being constitutional, not as much as over there, of course, but we, we do talk about things in a constitutional aspect. So that, that's quite confusing. And, and honest of you, I work in politics and I probably couldn't tell you what would be classed as constitutional and what wouldn't. It's, it's as you said, it's just a complete amalgamation. Uh, I mean, there's, there's lots of basic tenets of it. And many things are similar to the US, you know, freedom of speech, that sort of things. But there, there are differences as well. Now, it's, it's interesting, too, for us to watch from the outside uh, before we get your opinion on us. Uh, mm. A lot of people first kind of found out about this stuff watching the Brexit thing over the last few years. I, I know what, yeah. me and one of my kids, we'd always listen to prime minister questions on Wednesday morning because that's right about the time we did the car line at school. So we'd always listen to prime minister questions on Wednesday. Um, that's right. Yeah, it's uh, Wednesday at 12 o'clock. Um, yeah. Yeah. But every, every, that, every Wednesday. But that's the thing that was so different was the reason they discuss some of that, because whatever parliament passes, that's with some exceptions with the higher courts and stuff, that's pretty much the law and that's pretty much it. In yeah, the British yeah they, they, there is no separation of powers. So you have the government and they're all, all the ministers. So, for example, like you, our, our equivalent of your secretary of state, defense secretary, they're all MPs and they're and the prime minister, of course, is also an MP. So they, they have their own constituencies and it's all part of one. And it's there isn't as much. Uh, if, if a government's got a big majority, there isn't as much. They don't need to do things like pork barrel. They don't really need to do much trade-offs. They're just steam through, steam, steamroll through what they have because that's how it works. Uh, of course, that has benefits and also has drawbacks. And one of those drawbacks, of course, is um, you get the, something like the Brexit mess, which seemed to drag on for forever. It took what three, four, five years now. But then one yeah. of the positives of it is too is. You can do something like Brexit, where they finally got it done and they completely changed something, even though it took two or three years to do it. Before we get back to American stuff, it's been a year and a half, almost two years now. How's the Brexit stuff landing? I know they're they're working right now on some of the, the foreign policy stuff and foreign aid's mm-hmm. a big thing in Parliament right now going on. But just general right. public, has it died down? Is it still kind of a smoldering ember waiting to be it's- flared up again? How's it landing locally in England? I think it could be a potential flashpoint. It's something that could always come up again in the future, but I th- it was it's nowhere near as big as it was. I mean, I'd say probably from that entire period, especially sort of 2017 to 2019, that general election, um, there was complete deadlock, uh, in, in not, not just in terms of the parties, because obviously, as you know, we had an election and it was a hung parliament. Uh, it was just deadlock everywhere. It was deadlock in parliament. Parliament it's itself, I think it could agree that it didn't like the prime minister's deal, but it couldn't grow on anything else. And as a result, we had a sort of year or two of just pure deadlock and it was just a nightmare. Um, and it, it, it dominated it dominated politics, dominated society. It, it has died down now. Um, the issue itself is, is a constantly changing thing. Brexit will never be done as such, but um, it's it's at least now been put onto in the, the next stage, whereas before it was just completely stuck and we didn't even know if it was going to happen. There was talks of it being overturned or a second referendum and it was just 
it was just pure uncertainty. At least now we have, as Don Rumsfeld said, we have known unknowns. Before it was unknown unknowns, if you know what I mean. Yeah, nice reference to the recently departed uh, Donald Rumsfeld. Is, is it like in American politics where at some point the deadlock gets to the point where people almost, it's not that they don't care anymore, but they're just like, all right, we can't just keep doing deadlock. We have to do something. And then it's just kind of like the pressure breaks and they're like, okay, on with it. I think that's what happened with the election. The second election, so the first election, that was the first snap election, uh, so this was an election that wasn't planned. The Prime Minister sort of called it, the one that Theresa May called in 2017. That was before all the Brexit stuff, that sort of debate had been had, and that probably why there was a hung parliament. Whereas when Boris Johnson did his two and a half years later, everyone was so fed up, and obviously Corbyn was very unpopular. Uh, and I think that whole, whole get Brexit done message, was, which was what the election was fought on. Uh, that was what allowed him to get such a big majority. Uh, that was such a powerful motivator. I think people just wanted it done and sorted. And obviously, you can, you can disagree or agree how well it's been sorted, but it's been at least, as I said, moved on to the next stage now. Yeah. All right. Fair is fair. Time for you to give us a little grief. Our president just spent better part of two weeks over yonder with you folks in Europe. Uh, the mm-hmm. G7 conference, which has eight or nine people in it, but that's another matter for another day. How's it been landing over there? Uh, we we've, we had our mess with our own elections, the real messy after election stuff, the January mm-hmm. 6th stuff with the Capitol stuff and the riots that occurred. How, how is the perception of our friends over there of American culture and politics right now? We've got about six months of Joe Biden, somebody who's very familiar with the press over there because he was vice president for eight years. I think when he yeah. met the queen the other day, it was his, I think they said it was his sixth meeting with the queen. So somebody that's very familiar name-wise to you folks. Uh, mm-hmm. How's it been landing the last six months or so as they view American culture and politics from afar? I think it's gone back to the Obama days. And of course, I've always said this um, when it comes to American politics here, at least since the Bush days, it's always been a case of the... Um, Sort of Republican is sort of viewed as by default as being bad, Democrats good. And now, of course, uh, you know, me personally, I liked Bush, I didn't like Trump, but uh, it, it was that it followed that pattern. It was a case of, um, you know, it, it was sort of viewed as American politics was viewed as a circus. And I think in this case, it was justifiably viewed as a circus under Trump. Uh, whereas now it seems to be. Uh, it doesn't get as much courage anymore. It's it's sort of it's just taking a back seat. Uh, Biden, of course, is a is a known quantity. Uh, he's he's more predictable, which of course is is good in some ways, bad in other ways. Um, I think if you poll people on Biden, most who have heard of him would say they liked him. They probably couldn't tell you why they liked him, um, but he's he's obviously just seen as a as a of a dining down from Trump. I mean, personally, I'm I don't mind him, I guess, but he's I don't think he'd be a great president, but he's. He's a, he's just he's more nondescript. He's hard to have an opinion on, really. He's he's quite um he's quite bland, which is probably in a way a good thing in these days. Is he cut? Does he come across to folks that are not Americans overseas as just kind of oh he's just kind of the medium of a, what we perceive American to be and an American president to be? Is it that sort of a thing? Yeah, I mean, in every way, he he looks like an American president, and I don't mean that in a good or a bad way. He just looks like a sort of a nondescript uh, sort of American president you'd see in a, a film or a TV show. Uh, and I think it's coming across that way. It's, as I said, it's not really getting much coverage now. Um, Biden is, he's known, I think he's known for his Irish, his Irish sort of comments and links. And the, there are a few on the right here who sort of view him as a, as a sort of secret IRA sympathizer, which I think is nonsense. But um, on the whole, I think he, he, most people don't have strong opinions on him. He just does, doesn't elicit that kind of opinion that uh, Bush or Trump did, or even to an extent Obama did, because Obama, people here love Obama. I don't understand why, but oh, yeah. they love him, whereas Biden, I just get the impression people just are sort of meh about him. 
you know, do they follow American? I know American pop culture is kind of omnipresent in the world right now, especially since mm. the social media age. But is it is it one of those things where it's kind of like the crazy cousin almost? It's like, all right, we we want to see you from time to time. We just don't want to hear about you constantly. And it felt like the last <laughs> yeah. four or five years, it was just not even agree or disagree. It was just like, okay, just settle down. We don't want to hear any more for a while. Yeah, I think it got to that point. But of course, the thing is, politi- politics-wise, it was seen as sort of an interesting sort of TV show for us, um, for a lot of people. But interestingly, there's, of course, beyond politics, there's a sort of cultural discourse, which um, a lot of people over here actually are becoming annoyed with, is that it's, it's sort of coming over from America. So you've got American racial sort of discourse. A good example is the police. So for example, here, uh, there is very, very, very few examples of police killing anybody. It just doesn't happen very often. And um, police violence just... Although there are issues with the police, it's not the same as in the US. It's a completely different dynamic. But last summer, we had a very similar dynamic to the whole Black Lives Matter thing. And it, it just wasn't really applicable here. It didn't really carry over. And I think a lot of people are, are sort of, this stuff is coming over. And I, I, obviously, it's not Americans' fault. It's social media. You guys aren't deliberately sending it over here. It's just coming over. And I think there's this view that there's a lot of stuff in American culture which is sort of fusing with our culture. And, and it's just causing a lot of confusion, I think. And that's where you get things like the English national team taking a knee and people booing. And then folks had to try to explain, like, no, 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 this is why they're booing them taking the knee. It's this yeah. and this and the rejection of why. That's complicated because people just see it. They put the two things together and they don't understand there's a, there's a cultural problem there because there's a disconnect. I mean, the problem at first was that when it first came over last year, uh, the they had, Black, they had Black Lives Matter on the shirt. They had the logo on, on, on the side of their shirts. They... It was it went full on, and it was sort of it was it was sort of uh, you know intertwined with Black Lives Matter as a political movement, and then later on, uh, there was more attention brought to racism in football as it should be because racism in football is still a problem; it's not gone away. And now it has become a more gen- generalized. And I think the route they should have gone down from the beginning was less mate. It's about racism in football, not you know obviously the the, the issues in America are important, but what's more applicable to here is is the racism of football and and that, i think that's they 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 made a mistake by how they put it across but certainly now i think the, the booing and the knee taking I, I just think it's a bit silly i mean personally if they want if they want to kneel then that's fine that's their choice it's two seconds before a game it really doesn't affect me i'm really more concerned about you know who's playing and how they're playing i don't really care if they kneel before the game or not to be honest with you and the policing actions and now they had the big scandal with the with the young lady they they had um i forget her name on Sarah Evans, yeah yeah and cor- there was accusations of corruption and they can mm. pe- folks can look that up on their own it's not that there isn't issues with the police in london and elsewhere in the uk yeah. it's i guess the point was they they tried to make something that would be universal for social media instead of specific to the actual issues in the various areas when policing in the UK is very, very different than policing in America, especially in London. That's right, yeah. Yeah, London police is its own... The London police is actually... It's almost just like its own little country. Explain that to folks because they don't understand. Like, London's such a big city, but the police force and the way London is governed is really really unique in how the rest of the world works isn't it well with, with police in the uk it's, it's quite confusing because you've got for the most part it's counties counties have their own police forces although in scotland they have they have the single police force so that's that's a separate matter but in terms of the uk as far as i'm aware it's essentially every county has so a county is a bit like a state i guess it's not like a county in the u.s of course, that's right, worth right. pointing out. A county in the US is obviously, as you would know, is very different to a county here. A county here is, is sort of equivalent to a state to an extent. 
so every every county will have its own police force, uh, but London's got its own police force. Uh, so it's, but I think also Manchester has as well. So it, it does vary, um, and London is governed sort of. It has its own powers that say other cities don't. So, for example, there there are lots of cities in the UK which are still run by a local council, whereas London has its own assembly, and I think they in turn has its own mayor who has its own powers. And the mayor of London has, has got a lot of powers of certain sort of things, and it runs differently to how how you know a ceremonial mayor of another city because a lot of mayors here are just ceremonial, whereas London they have real control over things. And police, of course, the Met Police, they have their own remit, they have their own uh, budget, and it's separate from other police forces. And it's, yeah, it's it's quite confusing. And, but as you said, the, the police here have their own issues. Um, the Sarah Everett case was a perfect example of that. And that was a more British example. It was, that was organic. That wasn't just sort of something that was transplanted over. That did, um, that, you know, that, that was, that was a, uh, an anger over, the way so many sexual assault cases just go unconvicted or uninvestigated, and that, and that was a real issue. And that is a universal issue. It seems like if you want to get a universal one, that's a good one to do because you, we certainly are seeing it here. We see it, I know locally where I live, there's been a massive uh, school scandal uh, in the Wilmington, New Hanover County school districts of the school mm. system covering up abuse. Of course, you have it in church groups. We just saw it in the Southern Baptist Convention, the Catholic Church School, and in government too. So if you wanted to have a universal issue, that would seem like a good one to start with, especially where it comes to police. So That is a good point, yeah. But of course, what, what the issue that did come over was the whole... Um, sort of police targeting of minority groups, which although I think it does still happen in the UK, obviously, um, the extent to which it's institutionalised, as far as I'm aware, is nowhere near as widespread. And as of course, as I said, uh, when it comes to police killing people, uh, police, people dying at the hands of police is very, quite rare here. Yeah, but we do see, you know, I watch, you know, I'm a football soccer for us fan. Yeah. I've seen it. It hap- I actually saw it in person in Germany years and years ago. Oh, you, you, yeah, you don't see it. I was in the first time I was in Germany was oh one to oh four kind of time frame when the hooligan stuff was really not good. I've mm. seen where they had to do completely closed stadiums and having games just because racism. That's not something you actually see in America where it's like we have to clear yeah, the whole true. stadium that, out. But that still occurs a lot of time in Europe, especially in some of the Eastern Bloc areas, doesn't it? Yeah, especially Eastern Europe. It's it's not as much of a problem here. It still is a problem, but in comparison, it's worse in Eastern Europe. Uh, and that's the thing. Europe has its racist issues. Um, they're just different. They just express themselves in different ways, and it's it's obviously it's different histories. Um, a good example people always bring up is 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 Roma and Gypsy communities. They 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 get absolutely horrendous treatment in certain parts of Eastern Europe, where of course in the US it, it's just you you probably don't even really get that many Roma or Gypsy groups because it's 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 sort of a, an Eastern European ethnic group. So right. um, no, you're you're correct. Yeah, and when it comes to racism in sport here especially in parts of eastern europe and and again it still happens here as well you, you do get things which just don't happen in the us you, you will get racist abuse at, at sports matches and i mean up until sort of the 2000s it was very widespread as far as i'm from what i've read it was it was, it was almost accepted and it was it's only really the last 20 years that it's been clamped down on but even now there's still you know more to be done do you think social media is one of those things that actually this is an area where it's improving because it's not just the hooligans at the match, the whole world sees every time that happens now and folks just yes. kind of recoil from it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, back in the sort of the 80s and 90s when racism in football, you know, even here in the UK, was sort of widespread and it was it was just seen as part of the game. 
Um, there are lots. Obviously, there was there were loads of instances then which would have gone unrecorded because there was no smartphones, there was no chemicals were huge and it was a bit bulky to carry around. Whereas now, of course, you, they they usually find them on social media. And I think I think racism in football is a lot better than it used to be. A racism in sport in general, but of course, the instances that that do come up, they they do get very widely shared. So I think there's a perception that maybe racism in football is really bad right now, or you know, as worse as it's ever been when actually um it's it's obviously still there unfortunately but it's it's still an improvement from sort of the 70s and 80s where also football hooliganism as well was really bad i mean football obviously i wasn't alive then but football hooliganism and racism in football was awful back in in those days and it's 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 a lot better now talking about perceptions um there's a there's always anytime we switch presidents over here there's a big thing about oh our perception in the world is this that and the other what what is the U.S. perception right now? I know you said we, you know, President Biden's kind of seen as the kind of a return to norm for an American president. Yeah. Like you said, he looks like central casting the BBC would pick out for an American <laughs> president. What, but what is our perception? We have the Afghanistan drawdown that's uh, just really weeks away from being done. They just turned over uh, Bagram here in the last few days mm-hmm. as we're recording this. What is Americans' perception? Because we Americans, we always like to be very proud, like, oh, we export freedom, we export you know, liberty, this, that, and the other. What is it for you guys, though, looking back this way at us, what, what is the perception of what we're exporting to the rest of the world right now, besides pop culture? From a UK perspective, um, it, as I said, it usually varies based on the party of the president. So when Bush was in power, it was seen as, you know, uh, unilateral, uh, imposing its will on everyone else. And that's obviously not my view, but that's, that's what it was seen by a lot of people here. It was seen as just ignoring everyone else and just doing it, doing its own thing. And then when Obama came in, it was seen as sort of more of a good thing. And then once again with Trump, it was seen as, again, ignoring everyone, doing its own thing. And then with Biden, it sort of flipped back to the... It, so it's a, it's a very partisan lens, I think, here. It's not as overtly partisan, but people generally see it as a Democrat president as sort of being nice and engaging the world and the Republican as being isolationist and, and unwilling to cooperate, which of course, although that was the case in my opinion with Trump, it wasn't with Bush, but that was nonetheless the perception people had here. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think it's, I mean, most people here are still positive towards America. Uh, we still see you as, as our main allies. And we, if we were going to do something in the world uh, militarily, we, most people here understand that we need your support. We couldn't do it on our own anymore. Yeah, I was going to say, I saw a whole lot of British troops I worked with in Iraq, so we weren't completely on our own there, despite the perception, mm. um, and elsewhere around the world. Um, one of those things where we probably need to be working on more is a lot of press coverage here, how President Biden is going to be dealing with Russia. England very much has the Putin-led Russia on the mind lately. Of course, they had mm. the attacks on press and other Russian figures inside the UK that they targeted directly. The Nordstrom 2 pipeline has been in the news that uh, the Biden administration is kind of going to let that go forward unchallenged. This is one of the real geopolitical foes for England and America, both and NATO and quite what it used to be. How is that? Is that one of those things that we need to work together on? Is that the feeling in England that uh, we really need to be a team on the Russia front? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when it comes to Russia, the a lot of the way we see Russia, for example, is very similar to how, how the Americans see it. Um, I know that in Europe, in some European countries, they're a lot more pro-Russia, or, or at least not as as hawkish as we are. Germany, for example, because they're right on their doorstep and they've got the whole Nord Stream thing. Here, it's we very much see them as an aggressor, um, not just because of Salisbury and what happened there, but because of uh, just just their actions in general. Um, yeah, there, there is. I, I do agree with you there. It's 
it's we do need to work together more and uh, when it comes to sort of the divide between how how russia is seen and how other sort of geopolitical enemies are seen I think that the divide isn't between America and Europe. I think it's between possibly the Anglo-Saxon world and the uh, other parts of Europe, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. And for people who don't know, Salisbury was where Russia uh, poisoned people with uh, the plutonium poisoning and used the exact, the one that everybody would know was there as kind of a calling card attack where, you know, Putin can smile and go, of course we didn't have anything to do with it, but they're the only ones that do it that way. That's what you're referring to with Salisbury. Yeah, and civilians end up getting caught up in that. So they targeted uh, an ex-Russian agent or something. They, they targeted a Russian, but uh, a police officer, I think, and his wife ends up getting caught up in it and got seriously ill. And obviously, it was seen rightly so as an attack on the UK, not just an attack on an individual, but an attack on all of us. What other foes are, are on the horizon for England that maybe the Americans aren't paying attention to? I know the there's a lot of far-right activity in Europe. Mm. France looks they might have put theirs down a little bit, but they're still going to have an election about it. What else is out there that we should pay attention to as friends of yours? I think we have similar similar outlooks. I think we, we you know we, China has become more important now. And until recently, China, until a couple of years ago, China, I think we were probably more pro-China than, than the US. But then again, I think a lot of people woken up to China. Um, I mean, just I remember six years ago, there was a state visit by uh, Xi Jinping and he got the red carpet treatment. And our ex-chancellor actually is very pro-China. Uh, so chancellor, he's like the economics sort of secretary. He was very pro-China and he tried to get a lot of Chinese investment. And we, you know, we had the Huawei thing. But I think along with everyone else, we've sort of seen the true nature of the Chinese uh, government and we've now taken a harder stance on them. So I, I think that's probably more in line with the US now. Uh, in terms of the far right, we've actually been quite, historically, we've been quite insulated from it. We've never had a strong far right here. Um, not like, say, in France or Germany, we don't get far right parties getting 10, 15 percent of the, elect uh, the vote anymore. We just don't, we don't really get that. Um, yeah, I think our, our, I think our sort of threats are similar to, to how you guys would see them. I can't think of many which which you wouldn't know about, which we would. Um, obviously, you've got localized ones. Obviously, the IRA and, and Irish separatism that's always been an issue, but that's 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 a local issue. That's not an international one. What, we can't talk about extremes without being fair. Uh, the attack on our own capital, the riots on January six. Mm -hmm. How did that play? over there watching it from afar because I know how I felt about it, but I'm an American. You know, I'm always proud of my country. That wasn't a proud mm. moment for us. How did it play over there? No, it, it wasn't. I mean, obviously for me as someone who's always been very keen in America, I was, you know, I was horrified by it. But likewise, people who aren't as into politics as I am, uh, it was seen as quite bad. I mean, the scenes of, of just what happened, it was not, I didn't think many people were supporting it, put it that way. Uh, it was, I think most people saw it, for, you know, for what it was, it was an attempted insurrection. It was, it was disgraceful. Um, yeah, it, it was seen as very bad. And I think it's it's a shame, actually, because it will go down as that dark stain on America's history that day. And um, it, it's a real shame because I don't want people to associate that with America. I think America is more than that. But people will inevitably and understandably, they will associate that now with America and American democracy. Now, I say that that way that, you know, like, well, there were some people there that was there for the insurrection. There was a bunch of people there just caused trouble. It's a complicated thing, but it's a horrible mm. look. It's a bad thing for my country. Mm. We're saying all those things, and I know you're you're a American sympathizing and you're a good friend of ours, but just a general European, are they looking at that? Are they shocked because it's America and they thought it was better? Or is it I that kind of reaction? Or what was the reaction yeah, to think... just the common person of like, really, them too? I think it is that is sort of there's there's a view of the past few years which is sort of America is now more unreliable. Personally, I don't necessarily buy that, but 
they sort of see the political upheaval in America and it's America is sort of seen as a more, um, yeah, just unreliable. I think the, it's a view in Europe is quite common now is that sort of the EU is becoming more integrated and it's sort of seen as, well, well, America's got all their own problems. We need to sort ourselves out. Obviously the UK is no longer in the EU anymore, but it's, that's, that's quite a common view you hear now. It's more becoming more common to hear European politicians say that they need to sort of go their own way and they don't have to, they, don't, they shouldn't have to rely on America anymore. How realistic is that from somebody, um, you're in the halls of parliament professionally, you're kind of plugged in. How realistic is that from England? Is there a fear that you're, you're going to kind of wind up getting stuck in the middle with a Europe drawing away from America and still needing America, but still needing Europe too? I mean, we've always had that. I actually did my dissertation on this, uh, my, my postgraduate dissertation. I did it on the U.S.-U.K. special relationship. Uh, uh, I teed that up, po- didn't I? Yeah, it was quite, it was quite good. Post, this is post-Cold War. This was actually done in 2015, so it was just before Trump. and things. Got, it was just before Trump, just before Brexit, just before, just before things got really crazy. Um, but historically, we've, we've always been a bridge to Europe, um, you know, between, between America and Europe, because we, we have that different connection, because you guys are essentially descended from us, as it were. At least that's the way I see it. Politically, uh, the US is, is sort of a, a descendant of the UK, and um, yeah, there, there's always there's always a fear of of us, you know, what is our place in the world? Because it's we used to be it's obviously this huge empire. We know we're not anymore, and a lot of Brits, there's been an ongoing struggle for decades to sort of discern where exactly is our place in the world. Where should it be with some? Some would say with America. Some would say with, with the EU. Uh, some would say you know, apart from not both of them, uh, me personally, I would say we should, we should be more towards uh, America. And I think, but of course we shouldn't forget that the EU is always going to be, and Europe in general is always going to be on our doorstep. They're always going to be a big trading partner. So it, it'd be, it'd be foolish to just completely cut them off or be antagonistic. Um, I mean, the EU as an, as an institution, I'm not keen on, and I do feel they, they are quite antagonistic themselves. But we, we mustn't forget, of course, that Europe, they're our allies and they're not enemies. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's just navigating that balance. And I think us being out of the EU does change things somewhat. But at the end of the day, the, the sort of the geopolitical realities of the world are, are very much similar to what they were before Brexit. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's just maintaining the balance between them. But I would always be in favour of staying close to the US because their values are very similar to ours and their interests are often very similar to ours. Not always the same, but what's good for the US is usually what's good for the UK and vice versa. Yeah, well, to, uh, to end this on a happy note, I'm going to go to a big old cookout here in about an hour to celebrate the fall of the empire, no offence. <laughs> uh, but here's your shot. Everybody's always, you know, we're, we're big on food. We do the Twitter Supper Club. Here's your shot. Everybody's always bashing British food. I think it's unfair. I've been to England a couple of times. I found the food to be pretty good. What, what's the American food that just absolutely recoils you and you're like, my God, what is that thing when you look oh. at it? Like, what are you people eating over there? Um, I'm just trying to think. To be honest, I'm quite picky when it comes to food. So I there's probably lots of British food and American food I'd recall from. Um, I have to say I'm not a big fan of cheese or the kind of cheese you do over there. So for example, I'm going to get absolutely slated for this, but I'm, I'll admit it. I don't care. Uh, I went to Philadelphia a few years ago and I ordered a Philly cheesesteak without oh, uh, no. cheese. And the look without, of disgust. Wait, wait, wait. Got, you ordered a Philly cheesesteak in fit. Were you at Pat's or Gino's or? I was actually in the airport. I, I, I'd, I'd oh, forgotten no. to get one before, but I was in the airport and she still gave me a look of absolute disgust when I said, can I just have no cheese, please? <laughs> you ordered a Philly cheesesteak in Philly at the airport from a Philadelphian local and asked for no cheese. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
Oh man, I I don't think since Concord and Lexington has it almost come to blows no. like that. That's I mean, I know bad. I know that Americans. Then there's that woman. Uh, I think she was an American in the UK, and she was doing this thing with tea where she was I don't know. She was doing it funny. She was microwaving or something. A lot of people here didn't like that. Personally, I didn't care because I don't like tea. Tea is just all the same to me. I don't drink tea or coffee. So um, you guys can butcher tea all you like as far as I care. <laughs> I, I drink a little bit of tea, but I'm not allowed to have coffee because of GI issues. And I don't really like coffee anyway, so it didn't bother me. But I use the Keurig. I'll just be up front. Yeah, um, yeah. Keurig, honey, a little bit of milk in it. I'm, I can do a little tea from time to time. But, but I have to say the British, the, the American perception of British food, I don't really know where it comes from. I mean, I wouldn't say our cuisine is the best in the world, but... It's yeah, not it's bad, and, and certainly things like beans on toast—that's not as common as people think might think it is. I've never, no. I've never had it myself, but it's not. Yeah, it's roast roast dinner is what you should, roast dinner and fish and chips is what you should think of when it comes to British cuisine, not beans on toast. And you know, for me, where I grew up in the country, with you know, like we, you know, I'd send out pictures on my social media. You know, we had um, hot dog toppings out of the crock. But it, it, it's more like if you, if you grew up with country food or what we call comfort food in America, it's a lot mm. of stuff similar to that. It's kind of make do with what you got. So it's good. It's perfectly fine. It's not, you know, a hot cuisine kind of, um, and that's, that's the French hot, not the yeah. hot, hot, uh, for those of you from Logan. Um, it, it's, if you just started out with it being, it's more comfort, kind of common folk food then i don't think you have a drop-off because i found it to be really good when i was over there yeah i mean we do have some weird food here i don't know if you have, if you if you check it out there's a twitter account i think it's called rate my plate and it's it's a british one they mostly get british submissions uh there is some weird stuff on there i have to say uh, and i would advise anyone listening to this to check that account out for a good laugh because they do have some really bizarre stuff on there but just remember that it's not representative of us yeah like chip bunting is not a football player that's actually something they eat so you know, fries <laughs> exactly. on, what we call French fries on bread, fun stuff like that. I always find it weird how you guys call uh, coriander cilantro. I, I never understood that. It took me a long time to work out what cilantro actually was. Oh, uh, in my house, it's basil and basil. Um, uh, and yeah. it, it comes because yeah. my family, my kids especially, they love Gordon Ramsay shows. So it's, oh, always, okay. it's basil and basil, and that always turns into a big fight in our house. And you, you mess around and say it enough, you switch and start saying it the other way, and then everybody jumps your case. So, yeah, yeah. And uh, there, there's a few other pronunciations, but I always get a kick listening to, to like, prime minister questions, just how things are, you know, like schemes. Like, every government thing's a scheme. Well, everything's oh, a government oh, scheme yeah. over here, too, but scheme has a different connotation. Oh, so God, things like that. Start on the political buzzwords. And it's, uh, of course, in prime minister's questions as well, you have this weird ritual where often backbenchers from the governing party will have a sort of question they'll ask, but it's not a question. It's just them saying, will the prime minister agree with me that, you know, this government policy has worked. And it's essentially, they're, they're just, they're not asking a question. They're just doing a, a ritualistic uh, backslapping. And it's sort of, yeah. that's part of the parliamentary system. And it's probably something you don't get in the U S and you'd find it very weird if it happened in Congress, I imagine. Oh, we get them. We just do them in congressional hearings when the cameras are on where they have a quote-unquote question and they just basically rant for their allotted period. Theresa May, whatever else you thought about her, she was great with those backbend questions. She always found out some way to have a little bit of fun with them. Oh, yeah. Theresa May's very, uh, she's got a very dry wit. Uh, she's, yeah, she's, she's very good at fighting for what she, what she believes in. And she she won't, she's not the sort of person that would just um, blindly follow the government. She will stand up for what she believes in, which so, you know, I can respect that. Yeah, she was great at those because she was like, "Well, of course I'll come to your small town and ride your railway station. Of course I will." You know, and she just. I mean, she's been she's been doing that for a long time. She's she's been she's been around. So often, prime ministers Tony Blair and David Cameron they basically left Parliament as soon as they just stepped down as MPs and prime minister. Oh, she's still there. I just saw her the other day doing something. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's stuck. She's stuck around. 
Uh, Gordon Brown did for a while as well. I think uh, Ted Heath is another one. So Ted Heath was our prime minister in the 70s. And I believe he was an MP up until 2001. So he stayed around for decades afterwards. And that is, it's quite good to have that experience there. Because often I'll just go to the Lords, but you won't really see them in the Lords. Um, so, yeah, I do like when Prime Ministers stick around. And I hope, I hope um, Boris Johnson does the same when he eventually leaves. Well, he was a little different because he came, even though he's a member of Parliament, obviously, but his, his rise to fame was um, through Mayor of London. It was, yeah, it was. So his path was a little different. So I'm, I'm actually kind of curious when he's done with his uh, premiership. What's he going to do after that? My my suspicion is he, he won't stick around. I just don't think he will. I think he's, he's got other things on his mind. But um, usually, it's, it's sort of the, the, the long term MPs. Because I mean, he was an MP, I think, in like 2001, and they stepped down from the mayor of London, and they came back again. It's usually the MPs who have been around a long time. Who they're the ones who, after their prime minister, they carry on as, as being an MP. On uh, Ben Harris, I've appreciated the time, man. Tell folks where they can find you on social media because I sure do enjoy interacting with you, and they can find your red hot Oriole baseball takes at uh, weird hours of the morning. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, and it's been it's been a pleasure. Ben Harris, our friend, thank you so much, sir. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. You know, it's really interesting. Every time we do an episode of Heard Tell that the more things look like they're different, the more you start seeing a little bit of similarities. And when it comes to the British system of government and the American system of government, there's a whole lot of differences. But there's also quite a few similarities, and not just because America came from England and we borrowed some of the principles from the English system to our own and added a lot of our own spins on things like liberties and freedoms. A blast to talk to somebody like Ben, who kind of sees our politics from a completely different point of view and from viewing it from over there in his own culture and his own country, and from a position of friendship because America and England have been such close allies and friends for many, many years now. It's always good, no matter how much we love our own country, and we do, especially on this 4th of July weekend when we're celebrating so much and appreciating getting all those freedoms fully back that we can enjoy with the end of the pandemic stuff. To look at it from an outside perspective and understand that things like our perception in the world really do matter. When we say things like America is the greatest nation on earth or we're the shining city on the hill or America exports freedom and liberty, we need to make sure those things actually mean what they mean. And when we have our own troubles, which we're always going to have, we should understand that those sorts of things matter to a wider world that looks to us to be a beacon of freedom. And in some ways, we're not doing a great job of that right now. So it's good to have an outside perspective. Friends hold each other accountable. And we should be a little bit of humility to understand that when we do something really, really off the charts bad, when a friend tells us we need to adjust, we probably can listen to them a little bit. And we want to tell them that we're aware of our own problems and we will do better. Part of our Independence Day, we can appreciate all our freedoms and understand that we still got some work to do to make sure the future generations enjoy every bit of the freedoms that we have today if not even more, because that's what we really ought to be having. Let it never be said that America is lacking in freedom. That's it for this edition of Herd Tell. We really appreciate all the kind words and gestures we've been getting in the feedback. You can find us at Herd Tell Show on the Twitter, herdtellshow at gmail.com if you want to email us. You can also leave comments wherever you're listening to this podcast. The YouTube page is a great place to leave comments. If you go on the YouTube page and listen to all the full episodes that are on there, leave a comment. We will respond to it, answer your questions, give you feedback. It was great when we first launched the YouTube page where there was folks on social media counting off, I'm number one, I'm number 31, and things like that. You're a great audience. We greatly appreciate you. As long as you keep listening, 
we will keep making these programs. Now, there's a lot of exciting news after we get past the 4th of July holiday. We'll be bringing that to you shortly. Big changes that's going to be coming to this little platform, and we're looking forward to doing those for you. So until we talk to you next time, we really appreciate you checking out Herdtel. Tell a friend about it. Leave comments. Leave ratings. Most of all, wherever you and yours are listening across the street or around the world, thank you so much. Y'all take care of yourselves and each other until we talk next time. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.